You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we thank you that we have your word, which is a revelation of yourself to us. We ask that through our time here together, in it and before it, that you would work on our hearts and change our minds, change our hearts, change our lives as a result of your holy, powerful, living word. We are humbled before it, we are under it and subordinate to it, and we ask that it would do its work and encourage us here this morning and exhort us in ways that you have designed for it to do. We ask all of this to your praise, your glory, and your honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 26, and you'll need to have your Bibles open to that. I was thinking this last week that um, I realized that in Acts chapter 25, we only spent three Lord's Days in that whole chapter. Did you notice that? We only spent three Sundays in all of Acts chapter 25. Now, there's a reason for that. Much of it was a duplication of what was in 22, 23, 24, and the first part of 25. And we took some rather large passages of Scripture the last couple of weeks. And if that sort of made you uncomfortable covering 10 or 12 verses or more, then take heart because we're going to hit the brakes now that we've come to Acts chapter 26. We're going to slow down quite a bit. And it's not because I want to belabor any points. It's just that Acts chapter 26, this chapter, is utterly loaded with good stuff. Good stuff. This is one of the best chapters in all of the book of Acts. And so as we go through this, you're going to see that this chapter is just overflowing with some of the most masterful writing and some of the best doctrine and some of the richest things that you can possibly imagine. That's Acts chapter 26. This is the fifth and final speech that the Apostle Paul gives since his arrest in Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, it is the last speech in all of the book of Acts from the Apostle Paul. It's not the last thing we read from the lips of the Apostle Paul, but it is the last address, the last sermon, the last message that Paul gives to us that Luke records for us. And it is the fifth and final message of Paul's defenses. Now, remember the first message? It was in Acts chapter 22. It was before the crowd. The crowd was beating the Apostle Paul. Lysias arrested him. And then Paul, from the steps of the fortress Antonia, stood up and he delivered a message to the crowd. Sort of an informal defense. There was no formal accusers. There was no uh, magistrates on trial to hear it. So it wasn't a formal courtroom setting. But that was Paul's first address, Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 23 was Paul's address before the Sanhedrin. When he said, I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees and the Pharisees sort of split camps and both of them wanted Paul, the Pharisees to defend him, the Sadducees to kill him and Lysias had to take him out of there. That was Acts 23. That was his second defense. His third defense was before Felix when he answered the accusations of sedition, sectarianism and sacrilege. The fourth defense was before Festus when he uh, said, I have committed no crime against the law, against the temple, or against Caesar. Now, this is the fifth and final defense that Paul gives. And listen, this is the most significant passage of Paul's preaching. This is the most significant one in all of the book of Acts. This is the culmination of everything that has come before it. This is the high watermark. This is the zenith of everything that, that has been leading up to this. 
It is significant because of its length. Of all of the five addresses, this one is the longest. Luke gives more time and attention to what Paul says before Agrippa than he does to any of the previous four defenses. There's a reason for that. It is because it's significant. It is significant because of its content. In this address, you have from the lips of the Apostle Paul his own conversion story on the road to Damascus, his own commissioning, his own biographical information, a defense of the gospel. It is very biographical. It is Paul explaining how he got saved and why. It is very theological. There's a lot of things in this that are that Paul would not have said probably to anybody but Agrippa. It is significant because of its length, because of its content, and because Acts chapter 26 is the climax of the entire book. Acts 27 and 28, listen, Acts 27 and 28 are sort of the wrap-up chapters. Acts 26 is the is the legal climax of the whole book of Acts. This is his last offense. All of the legal issues that have plagued the Apostle Paul, the charges brought against him by the Jews, all of the trials that he's had, it all culminates with Acts chapter 26. And everything since his arrest has sort of been building to Acts 26 and this defense before Agrippa. And it is at the end of this defense before Agrippa that Agrippa says, I would have set him free, but he appealed to Caesar, so we have to let him go to Caesar. That's his... Last and final innocent verdict. And all of the legal issues sort of climax in Acts chapter 26. It's not only the legal climax of the book, it is also the apologetic climax of the book. This is, and by apologetic I mean a defense of something. See, there are themes throughout the book of Acts. One of the themes that Luke has sort of cued us into has been this idea that Christianity is the fulfillment and the proper expression of all of Old Testament Judaism, that all of the law and all of the prophets pointed forward to Christ, and that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. He has also been giving us throughout the book of Acts, because we've seen this over and over again, the whole theme that Christianity is a legal religion because it was the expression of Judaism, and that Christians were innocent of crimes that they were accused of committing. It is a defense of the resurrection, the book of Acts is. It is a defense of the person of Christ and His Messiahship and the fact that He is the Son of God and that He is risen again from the dead. All of those apologetic themes and defense themes are all wrapped up in the book of Acts and this is the apologetic climax of all of them because this is where Paul just sort of unloads the whole barrel on Agrippa. And not only the legal climax of the book and apologetic, but also the biographical. So here we get all this information from the Apostle Paul, all this rich stuff about his upbringing, his birth, his conversion, his education, his commissioning to be an apostle, his work, his ministry, his philosophy of all of that. It's sort of from Paul's own lips who he is and what he is about. And then it is also the intellectual climax of the book. Because listen to this, friends. This is not just one layman discussing theology with another layman, Paul and Agrippa. Not just a couple of guys over a cup of coffee discussing theological and intellectual issues. This is Agrippa who was an expert in all things Jewish with the Apostle Paul who was an expert in all things Jewish. And between the two of them, from one intellect, from one expert, from one bright mind to another, it is a discussion of theological and doctrinal issues that have massive ramifications upon everyone and everything. So it is one intellect discussing the resurrection of Christ with another intellect. It is the intellectual and theological climax of the book of Acts. So you have all of that in Acts chapter 26. You have all of the legal issues, all of the apologetic themes, all of the biographical information, all of the intellectual theological information. And that is all beautifully woven together 
and presented in this magnificent tapestry, which is his defense before Agrippa. Now, what led up to this? Well, Paul was in prison for two years under Felix, and then he had a chance to present his case before Festus. He appealed to Caesar. The Festus had a problem. Do you remember what the problem was from the end of Acts chapter 25? Festus needed to send a letter to Nero. Well, what do you write in the letter? Uh, I have an innocent man who's been accused of theological issues with the Jews, and, and that's his dilemma. What do I write to Nero to sort of explain the case? And then Agrippa comes down with his sister Bernice. And I'm not going to go into all the details and go down the road with Agrippa and Bernice again because that makes my wife very uncomfortable when I do stuff like that. I don't know why. She doesn't know why, but she's uncomfortable. So I'm not going to tell you about Bernice and Agrippa again. But Agrippa comes down with his sister Bernice and to pay Festus respects. And while they are there, Festus thinks, what better person in all of the world than this expert on all things Jewish to have him hear the apostle and give me some input on what to write to Nero when I send Paul to, to the Caesar for trial. So they decide to have this, this sort of very informal defense, but it ends up being formal in the sense of all of the pomp and ceremony that went with it. And so Festus decides that on the occasion that the apostle Paul is going to give his defense before Agrippa or Agrippa is going to hear Paul that they would take the occasion to honor Agrippa and so they do all of the prominent city the end of Acts chapter 25 says all the prominent men of the city all the leaders all the business leaders the military commanders all of the people from Festus's administration and Agrippa's administration they all come together in Herod's praetorium Herod's tribunal area there probably a couple of hundred people of all of the distinguished men and they bring the apostle Paul in all that pomp and all that ceremony just to hear this this little 60-year-old Jew give his explanation as to what he believes and why he believes it. Now, I want you to put this in a modern context for just a second. Imagine the State of the Union address with all of the legislators, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Supreme Court Justices, all of the staff of all of these people listening in, distinguished people from all over the country who have come to hear the President, and to honor the president, and imagine the Apostle Paul being given the opportunity to present his theology, his defense of Christ, in a gathering like that. That's the modern-day equivalent. That's what they had here in Acts chapter 26. So they bring the Apostle Paul in, and Paul gives this case. Now let's look at what he says, shall we? Beginning at verse 1, and what we're going to do is we're just going to cover Paul's introduction here in verses 1 through 5. Chapter 26 Agrippa said to Paul, and what I want you to notice is that in, in giving the defense, if, you ha- if we had a two-point outline, it would probably be something like this. Because you notice you don't have an insert this morning, and there's a reason for that. It's because I was too lazy to really put together a good outline for this that you could follow. But if we had a, two, an, a two-point outline, it would be this. Paul is focusing in on Agrippa's expertise, expertise and then his own expertise. So verses 1 through 3, Paul highlights Agrippa's expertise. Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Verses 4 to 5 is Paul's expertise. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. 
Now you notice what Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. That indicates to us something that is interesting about this defense of Paul before Agrippa. And here's what's interesting. This is in no way a formal trial. In no way is this a formal trial. And I'll tell you why. There are three reasons. First of all, the, the wording that Agrippa uses, he says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. He uses the passive voice, not the active voice. In other words, Agrippa doesn't say, I give you permission to speak for yourself. Agrippa is just kind of handing over the Apostle Paul and says, have at her. You're permitted. Go ahead. Say what you want to say. It's not, it's not the official Roman trial or Agrippa would have said, I give you permission to speak for yourself. Second of all, you notice there's no accusers and no accusations. Do you notice that? There's no accusers that are brought forward like with Felix and like with Festus and like in the Sanhedrin. There's no accusations and no accusers that are brought forth for this trial. Third, the Apostle Paul has already appealed to Caesar. Remember that? 25 verse 13, I appeal to Caesar. That means one thing. He didn't have to be at this. It was out of Festus's court. It was out of Agrippa's hand. He was no longer under their jurisdiction. When Festus said to Paul, I'd like you to come down and appeal before Caesar, Paul had every legal right in the Roman system to say no. Or when, he, when, when Festus asked Paul to come give his case to Agrippa, Paul had every right to, under the Roman legal system to say no. I have appealed to Caesar. So to Caesar I'm going. And the next time I state my case, it's going to be before Nero. I'm not showing up. Have all of your pomp, have all of your ceremony, have your big to-do, all of you get together and lavish your love, big love fest, pat everybody on the back, but I'm not going to be there. Paul could have said that. He didn't have to go to this. This was not an official trial. There are no accusers. There are no accusations. What is the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all of this is because Festus needs something to write on the letter to Nero. And he wants to find out. So Agrippa said, I need to hear the guy. Let's have him come in. But Paul does show up. Why does Paul show up if he didn't have to show up? Why does Paul show up if he doesn't have to show up? You know the answer to that, don't you? Miss an opportunity to preach Christ? Are you kidding me? In front of this gathering? Agrippa and Festus and Bernice? You know how Paul viewed himself? Paul viewed himself as an ambassador for Christ. Do you know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents one person to another. And here Paul had the opportunity to represent Christ to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and all of the heads of state in the Roman capital of Caesarea. That's the opportunity to present Christ. And the message that Paul gives is a message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, every Christian is an ambassador for Christ. And the message that we have is the message of reconciliation so that we beg and we plead men to be reconciled to God through Christ. That's the ministry of reconciliation. We are begging with people to believe on Christ for salvation because that's the most desperate need. And you see at the end of this message, Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says what? Agrippa, I wish that not only you, but everybody here would become just as I am except for these chains. What Paul is after is conversion with Agrippa. And so here, even though he didn't have to be here, it's not an official trial, Paul has one goal and one goal only in mind, and that is to present the gospel of Christ to Agrippa. And Paul does it just to Agrippa. You'll notice everything in this address is addressed just to Agrippa, up to the point where Paul's interrupted. But everything is addressed just to Agrippa. Why is he doing that? Because it's almost like in Paul's mind, Agrippa is a prime candidate for salvation. And he is after Agrippa's reconciliation with God, his salvation. And so he begins to address Agrippa. And it's like everybody else in the room just disappears. 
And for 23 verses, it's like there's only Paul and Agrippa having this conversation about theological issues as Paul waxes eloquent and everybody else just kind of disappears out of sight for a bit. Paul is an ambassador in chains and he's there to represent Christ. It's not an official trial. So look what Paul says. He says, uh, Agrippa says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand like this. He would raise his hand just like this because that was the custom. You remember back in Acts chapter 22 or at the end of chapter 21 when Paul's standing up on the fortress steps of Antonio and the crowd is there shouting for his blood. It says that Paul motioned to the crowd with his hand and then a hush fell over the crowd. Because in ancient times it was recognized that when somebody was about to give an address or a speech, they would raise their hands like this and that would draw everybody's attention and everybody would be quiet until the Apostle Paul. And so he's indicating, I'm getting ready to speak. So he lifts his hand. Now, I imagine that he did this because there was probably a lot of sort of rumbling going on amongst all of these people. Do you remember that? 200 to maybe 300 or more people in this gathering, and everybody would be kind of talking, well, who is this guy? This is, who's this Jew? Is this the guy that's the respons- responsible for this great occasion of all this pomp and ceremony? Probably a lot of rumbling, people talking amongst themselves. And so as Paul gets ready to speak, he lifts his hand. And that would quiet the crowd. It would indicate to everybody he has the floor. He's been given the floor by Agrippa, and so he's about to speak. So look what he says. In regard to all of the things of which I'm accused by the Jews. Now here's what's interesting about that statement. Stop for just for a second. In regard to all of the things about which I have been accused by the Jews. What had he been accused of the Jews, by the Jews of? It was sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Remember those three accusations? You know what's interesting about chapter 26? those accusations don't even come up in this defense. They don't even come up. All of the other things that we've seen Paul um, defend himself against before Felix and before Festus, everything he said was geared to getting an innocent verdict. And he knew what the three accusations were. But he begins by saying, in regard to all of the things of which I have been accused by the Jews. And then he goes off on this discussion about theology and the resurrection and Christ and the Messiahship of Christ and His apostleship. And you say, well, I thought you were talking about all of the things that of which you had been accused by the Jews. And the answer is, he was. He doesn't bring up sedition and sectarianism and sacrilege. You know why? Because by this point, in all of the legal wranglings over the Apostle Paul, all of those accusations have been pushed right off the table. They're not even on the radar screen anymore. The Jews had tried that before Felix. He's a, he causes dissension and he's a ringleader of the sect and he defiled our temple. And it didn't fly. Felix didn't buy it. They had no witnesses. They had no evidence. They brought him up again before Festus. And now before Agrippa, Paul says, in response to all of the things of which I have been accused by the Jews, and you know what the central issue is now before Agrippa? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the only accusation the Jews had left. All of their other three have gone out the window. Paul doesn't answer anything about sacrilege, sectarianism, or um, sedition. Because those charges aren't even brought up anymore. Everybody knows this is about things regarding the Jewish religion. Acts 25, verse 18 and 19. Remember Festus? He said, when they brought accusations against the man before me, it wasn't like what I was expecting. It was things regarding their own law and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. That was the accusation. The Jews would stand before Agrippa and they would say, he believes in the resurrection. And that's your problem with him? Yeah, he believes in the resurrection. Well, whose resurrection? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what stuck in their craw. That's what they couldn't swallow. That's what they couldn't get over. Everything else was just smoke and mirrors. The central issue was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, in regard to the things of which I've been accused, which was his doctrine about the resurrection, Paul says, 
I am fortunate to present my case. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. King, I consider myself blessed to have the opportunity to stand before you. Does that sound like flattery? It's not flattery. Paul's just saying, making a kind statement. He does consider himself blessed, and you know why? There's two things about Agrippa that Paul has going for him. First, Agrippa was knowledgeable. Agrippa understood the issues. He had a, a head on his shoulders that could assess what the Apostle Paul was saying. And so Paul sees here the opportunity to lay out his gospel, to explain his theology, and he knows that he has somebody in front of him who is able to intellectually assess his arguments and his interpretation of Scripture and his theological position. And Paul says, man, this is a great opportunity. Of all of the rulers in the Roman Empire, Paul gets to stand before the one who was the perfect opportunity for him to, to lay out all of this. And Paul says, I'm, I'm blessed that I have the opportunity to stand before somebody who is an expert in all of the customs and all of the interpretations of the law. Agrippa was very knowledgeable. He knew the law. He probably knew the Old Testament Scriptures well enough to have some sort of an intellectual discussion and hold his own with the Apostle Paul. He knew the law and the prophets well enough that Paul could count on him having a head on his shoulders to assess the situation. He was knowledgeable enough that he knew all of the sects within, Christ, within uh, Judaism and what they thought and what they practiced. And although Agrippa was not a Jew by birth, he was a Jew by practice. He was a, sort of a proselyte. He participated with the Jews in all of their things. And of all of the Roman rulers in all of the empire, Agrippa was considered by Rome an expert in all things Jewish. So Paul says that's a wonderful opportunity. Not only was he knowledgeable, but second, Agrippa, unlike anybody else, was objective. You know why? Did Agrippa have any horses in this race? Were Felix and Festus objective? No, they had a whole political issue going on with the Jews, didn't they? So as they approached Paul's case, they had the Jews that they were trying to do a favor for. They were trying to keep the, the Jews from revolting, and so they had to be very careful in how they handled the Apostle Paul. Both of them very reluctant to, to approach Paul's case objectively, but not so with Agrippa. Agrippa has no horse in the race. He doesn't care. He's just there to assess it intellectually. He's very objective. Just let me have it. Tell me what you... You're permitted to speak for yourself. Give me what you got. Very objective. And Paul says, I'm, I'm blessed to have that opportunity. And Paul is about to lay out for Agrippa in very longhand his theology, his approach, his practice, his, his, his position, his gospel. All of that he's about to spell out in great detail. That's why at the end of verse 3, Paul says, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. See, that's the preacher in Paul coming out. Ask his audience, just give me time, I'll get to it. Uh, we'll get there, just hear me out and hear me out patiently because Paul says the opportunity here, I'm going to spell all of this out in great detail. And so that's Agrippa's expertise. Paul highlights Agrippa's expertise. Now what I want you to notice here, folks, is something that I think is very applicable for us and very encouraging to us. Do you notice how Paul longed for and looked for and loved the opportunity to present his gospel to somebody who was an expert? You notice that? Paul wasn't fearful of what an expert might say about it. Here's an expert in all things Jewish. And Paul says, man, he just salivates at the idea of presenting his gospel to somebody who has the intellectual acumen to assess it and to interact with him over it. He sees this as a great opportunity. Sometimes as Christians, we're fearful of presenting our gospel to people who are an expert in science or an expert in philosophy or an expert in history or an expert in archaeology, thinking to ourselves that our gospel... Our worldview and our Christian faith can't stand up to scrutiny. And that's not the case, friends. Our Bible can stand on its own two feet. Our Bible can do its own heavy lifting. 
Our gospel and our worldview are capable of answering the tough questions that people put to it. And Paul sees the expert not as somebody to fear, but he looks forward to the opportunity of spelling this out to somebody. Our gospel and our message has nothing to fear from somebody who is skilled in their field, which Agrippa was. Second, I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul highlights his own expertise. Beginning in verse 4, So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Verses 4 and 5 is Paul's expertise. Paul says, all of the Jews know me. All of these people who have accused me, all the people who have opposed me, all of my enemies, all of these people who hate me, they know me and they know me well. And they have known me, Paul says, from my youth up, how I spent my time amongst my own nation and at Jerusalem. Two different places that Paul had spent the majority of his life. Among his own nation, he says, that's a reference to being in Tarsus, where he was born. Because remember, Paul wasn't born in Jerusalem, was he? He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was no insignificant city. Had a large, very active Jewish population. And Paul says, even though I was born outside of Jerusalem, I was born in a city with a large Jewish population, and I spent my time amongst my own nation. I was not fraternizing or hanging out with Gentiles and people who were unclean and doing all of those things. Paul says, I was with my own people. And I spent my time at Jerusalem because sometime in Paul's youth, likely before he started school, his parents moved from Cilicia, from Tarsus, down to Jerusalem. And that is where the Apostle Paul was educated. He spent his youth, his whole upbringing in the city of Jerusalem. Paul says in Acts 22, I think it's verse 3, that I was brought up in this city and educated in this city. And you remember Paul's education? Who was his teacher? Gamaliel. Was Gamaliel an intellectual slouch? Gamaliel was the greatest rabbi of his time, literally a legend in his own time. And the education at the feet of Gamaliel was something that every Jewish boy could only drool over. It was something that you, if you even got an education at Gamaliel's feet, and if you ever even kept an education with Gamaliel, you had to be one of the brightest in the land. That's the Apostle Paul. Gamaliel was not a public school teacher, friends. This was somebody who was paid privately to educate kids. This was the elite of the elite education. Paul was born in Cilicia, he moved to Jerusalem, he's educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was no theological liberal, Gamaliel was no intellectual slouch, and the Apostle Paul was no theological liberal, and the Apostle Paul was no intellectual slouch. And what Paul's trying to say to Agrippa is, when it comes to being a Jew, I am as Jewish a Jew as a Jew could be. It doesn't get any more Jewish than born of the tribe of Benjamin amongst your own people and hanging out with your own people and moving to the center of Judaism, which is Jerusalem, and then being educated by one of the greatest rabbis of the time at the feet of Gamaliel, that's as Jewish as Jewish can be. And that's what Paul wants Agrippa to understand. And he says, all of the Jews know this. The Jews who have accused me, they knew Paul from the time that he was a young boy. Listen, Gamaliel sat on the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests. Gamaliel was on the Sanhedrin. Paul's teacher was on the leading body that opposed the early Christians. Do you think that all of these Jews who now served on the Sanhedrin, do you think they knew Paul? They knew Gamaliel's students. They knew Gamaliel well. Some of them sat in on his classes. This was a man who from his, from his very earliest years had made himself notable in Jewish circles with his learning, his intellect, his zeal, and his commitment to his faith. He was as Jewish as Jewish could be. And Paul says, they know me. They know me from my upbringing. The time that I was a boy, these people know. 
They know how Jewish I was. They know about my education. They know about my zeal. And Paul says, if any of them would want to be intellectually honest, they could all testify to you that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. A Pharisee, that was kind of the conservative group amongst the Jews. The Pharisees, Sadducees. The Pharisees were theologically conservative. Believed in such things as God's sovereignty. Believed in such things as supernatural uh, resurrection, life after death, eternal reward, eternal punishment, angel spirits. The Sadducees were the exact opposite. They were the theological liberals. They didn't believe in any of those things. Denied all of the Old Testament scriptures except the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of Moses. So he says, I'm, I am a member of and lived as a Pharisee. It wasn't just a profession of faith with the Apostle Paul. He says, I lived according to the strictest sect of our religion. Now, why does the Apostle Paul highlight all of this for Agrippa? Let me tell you why. The Apostle Paul wants Agrippa to see three things that are key. Now, listen to these three things, and I'll tell you why the Apostle Paul is, is keying in on these. Agrippa would be able to see that Paul was a scholar. With that kind of an education, that kind of an upbringing, being a Pharisee, the Apostle Paul was not an idiot. He was not illiterate. He was not ignorant of the issues. He was not an intellectual slouch. He was a scholar, and he was a scholar of first class, of first rate, of highest rate. This guy was intellectually brilliant. If you don't believe that, just read and study the book of Romans. Take any epistle of the Apostle Paul and read and study it, and tell me what you think about the guy. He was absolutely intellectually brilliant, and Agrippa would be able to see that. And see, sometimes in our world, and amongst the people that you are going to hobnob with tomorrow, they think that in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brains at the door. You notice that? That Christianity is for people with strong hearts but weak minds. And that you really have to be able to sort of check out of reality if you're going to be a Christian. You can't have any kind of intellectual honesty or discernment or intellect at all if you're going to be a Christian because it's for people with strong hearts but weak minds. Is that true? I would say that's not true. Do I need proof? Yeah, Exhibit 1, Saul of Tarsus, right? He's an intellectual giant. It's almost as if God, in knowing what the Jews were going to say, that the Jews were going to say, we can't be Christians because it's just simply a weak-minded faith. Okay, well, I'll give you Paul. Here you go. Contend with him in the synagogues a few times. You think that Christianity is for the weak-minded? Go ahead and debate Saul of Tarsus and see how far you get. Agrippa would be able to see that Paul was a scholar. Second, Paul's biography to Agrippa shows Agrippa that Paul was a moralist. He's not a licentious man, not a loose living man, not immoral, not prone to any kind of immorality. The Pharisees had rules upon rules upon rules for cleanliness and purity and all of those things. Paul says, I lived as a Pharisee. I was a moral individual. There was no hint of immorality in the Apostle Paul. So strict was he in living his morality that when it comes to talking about his own keeping of the law in Philippians chapter 3, Paul could just say, as pertains to the law, I was a Pharisee. That says it all. He didn't need to say anything else. When it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee. Blameless. Spotless. Pure. He was morally upright as a Pharisee. Even before he was a believer, he was a morally upright individual. Didn't compromise his integrity, wasn't licentious, wasn't looking to gratify his flesh or his desires. He was a very moral, very virtuous man even before salvation. In fact, that was the problem with the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? He thought that that would gain him something in the eyes of God, and it doesn't. It doesn't gain you anything. That's why after talking about all of his moral purity, Paul said, I abandon all of that just for the sake of knowing Christ. 
Because all of that doesn't add anything to me. None of my morality, none of my purity, none of my virtue means anything to God. And it doesn't. You're sitting here this morning and you think that somehow God looks down on you in favor because you're moral or because you're virtuous or because you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments or you somehow think that you can gain enough righteousness of your own to please God and He'll look down on you in favor and you stand before the gates of heaven. He'll say, oh, you lived a moral and you lived a virtuous and you lived a righteous life. Come on into my heaven. That's not going to be the way it is. He's going to say, depart from me, you wicked and everlasting flames. Why? Because our morality and our virtue doesn't accomplish anything. And what Paul is saying to Agrippa is, I was a scholar, had all of the intellectual capacity that you could expect. I was a virtuous and moral man because I lived as a Pharisee. I didn't just profess to be a Pharisee. I actually lived it. And the third thing that Agrippa would be able to see is that the Apostle Paul was Orthodox. If he's a Pharisee, that means he's not a theological liberal. He didn't deny the Scriptures, didn't deny God, he didn't deny the doctrine of the resurrection, didn't deny uh, all of the doctrines about God, he didn't deny angels and spirits and all the supernatural things. He was orthodox. Paul had the right God, he had the right Scriptures, he had the right doctrines, he just didn't have the right Savior. That was the problem. But when it came to the theological schools of his day, he was very orthodox. Now why does Paul bring all of this up for Agrippa? Because listen, folks, here's the million-dollar question. What is it that would cause a man with that kind of a pedigree, that kind of an intellect, that kind of an education, that kind of morals, and that kind of orthodox doctrine, what would cause a man to turn his back on all of those things that were gained to him and count them as loss and embrace Christ and suffer persecution? Somebody who was so notable, so well-known, so accepted by the Jews of his day. This could have been the next... The next Gamaliel, if he had only stayed Jewish in his theology. But instead, he casts all of that behind him and embraces Christ. What in the world could you attribute that kind of change to? What causes that kind of change in a man? Now, you know where Paul's going because in your Bible, you can pick it up and you can see all the red letters that come later on in chapter 26, can't you? You know what it is that causes that. And that's what Paul's preparing Agrippa to hear. Somebody might say, well, he only became a Christian and left his Judaism. He became a Christian because he didn't really know Judaism that well. He really wasn't intellectually sound, really didn't have it all together, didn't know stuff like Gamaliel knew it. What do you say to that? Now, there's a scholar of first-rate proportions. Well, maybe he left Judaism and left his Old Testament ways because he was an immoral man. He was looking for a a license to sort of express his flesh, and, and he sort of hated the requirements No, he's a moral man, right? Lived as a Pharisee. Maybe he left Judaism and left all of his Old Testament ways because he just didn't have right doctrines about God, didn't believe the right things about God in the Scriptures, didn't respect the Word of God at all. Maybe that's why he left. No. No, he was as orthodox as orthodox could be. To what then do you attribute such change? That's the question. That's what Paul is going to give Agrippa. Agrippa is going to want to know, well, if all of that was true of you, why did you change? And that's where all the red letters come in. I want you to notice something here, friends, that's very encouraging to us. We're going to close with this. You look at the Apostle Paul and you look at his biography and everything that you've got to know about him from chapter 9 of the book of Acts on through and all of the times that we've heard his own biographical information, his own conversion story. And here's what strikes me. When I look at Paul, this is what I see. I see a man whom God was preparing for apostleship from just being an infant. Do you see that? In the providence and the sovereignty of God, his parents moved down from Tarsus to Jerusalem. He got in with Gamaliel. He got the education that every Jewish boy could only dream of. 
He was sort of set apart from his mother's womb. Do you get that impression? Set apart for his mother, from his mother's womb until God chose to reveal his son in him. And before Paul was even saved, the, the Lord of the universe was chiseling him and fashioning him into the person that he wanted him to be. And everything that Paul experienced from the time that he was an infant to the time on the Damascus road was customized for him to make Paul who God wanted Paul to be so that he could be an instrument in God's hands. You notice that? All of his personality, all of his talents, his hired wiring, his, his skills, his abilities, the type of person that he was, his intellect, his education. It was like everything was customized for him to make him an instrument in God's hands. And now I ask you this question. Do you think that that was unique only to the Apostle Paul? No. You know what we do, friends, typically? Typically, we, we wish that God would have made us something different than we are or allowed us to be born in a different family or in a different time or in a different place and made us a different person so that we could be more used by Him or different in some way to be used by Him. I don't buy that at all. Acts 17.26 says that God sets our times and the boundaries of our habitation. God determined when you would be born, where you would be born, to whom you would be born, how you would be born, and even the place, time, and person who would be instrumental in your rebirth to Christ. All of that was by God's hand. He sets our times and the boundaries of our habitation. And He is fashioning you. Don't ever second-guess God and say, oh, if I only had a better intellect. Maybe you're not the brightest person here. Maybe you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, the brightest light bulb in the chandelier. Maybe you do have some intellectual defects. Maybe that's true of you. Well, join the club, right? There's a big group of us that are like that. But don't question God for doing that. Maybe God gave you an, a, a staggering intellect and all kinds of educational opportunities and a wonderful group of teachers that have made you the intellectual giant that you are today. Well, praise God for that. But He was involved in fashioning you to be the person that He wanted you to be from the very beginning. Whether you're an intellectual giant or an intellectual pygmy or someplace in between. You say, well, I wish God would have saved me earlier. Earlier in life, before I had a chance to mess things up and screw things up and Express my depravity. Listen, folks, God is sovereign over the timing of your salvation. He's sovereign over the place of your salvation. And you were saved when God wanted and how God wanted for His purpose and for His glory. No question in a minute. Just thank Him that He did it. And then ask yourself, how has God wired me? Maybe you're artistic. I'm not artistic. Maybe you're musical. I'm not musical. Musical in any regard. But the question is, how has God wired you? How has God fashioned you? Do you understand you're fearfully and wonderfully made and that every detail of your life, before when you were in your mother's womb, God was designing to shape you into the person that you are today for His glory. And the question is, how can I use who I am and what God has made me for His glory? He did that with the Apostle Paul. Set apart from his mother's womb until it pleased God to reveal His Son in him, Paul said. And everything about him was geared to making him the person that God wanted him to be so that God could use him in the way God wanted to use him. And it's not unique with Paul, friends. Your mind, your heart, your intellect, your physical handicaps, or your physical abilities are all things that God has designed into you to make you who God wants you to be. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Knit together in the lowest parts of the earth in your mother's womb. And God sees your most inward parts. And don't say, I wish I were taller. I wish I were shorter. I wish I were smarter. I wish I weren't as smart. I wish I were better looking. I wish I had hair. I wish I didn't have hair. I wish I was heavier. I wish I was lighter. I wish I was more athletic, less athletic, more artistic, less artistic, more musical, less musical. Don't second guess God. 
God made Paul who he was for that purpose. You were set apart from your mother's womb. He put a seal on you in eternity past. He set his grace on you in eternity past. And everything in your life has been for the purpose of making you an instrument of his choosing for his blessing and for his glory. That's the way God does it. And that's what we see in Paul and is true in our lives as well. Father, we thank you for your grace to us and your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you that everything by your sovereign and providential and gracious hand is designed to make us into men and women who are equipped and able to serve you in unique capacities and in unique and gifted ways. We thank you that your plan is perfect. We thank you that you are perfect. And we thank you for this reminder of just how it is that you choose and use men and women in your service. Encourage us this morning, Father, by bringing all of this to our minds again. We're grateful for it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.